My name's Brian Ricks. I'm a retired police officer. So I work mainly homicide and crime investigation. After 36 years, uh, I now ride my motorbikes as long and as often as I can. And I'm Shirley Hardy-Ricks, Brian's wife. Uh, I don't ride, I'm opinion, and I'm very happy on the back of the motorcycle. Listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Welcome to another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. My name is Jim Martin. Well, we're going to deal with travel addiction today. We're going to talk with Brian Ricks and Shirley Hardy Ricks, who are most certainly addicted to travel on their motorcycle. We got a good one for you. Stay with us. Today we're talking with Brian Ricks and Shirley Hardy Ricks, who are both from the land of Oz and are clearly addicted to traveling by motorcycle. And after hundreds of thousands of kilometers, they're still doing it. Two up. Today I've caught them at their home in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Much appreciated. Well, let's start off by talking about your travels. You gave some indication there, Brian, of what you're into. Clearly, you're you're severely addicted to riding a motorcycle, and I applaud you for that. Give us an overview of your travels. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I've been riding bikes since I was about, uh, I bought my first one at 12, and I've ridden the outback and all the country areas in Victoria. And uh, as I went through my career, I, I rose through the ranks and became a homicide investigator, homicide uh, officer in charge. And I worked for four years without having a holiday. And one of the best things I wanted to do was ride uh, a motorcycle overseas. And um, uh, as you dream about these things while you're doing that nine to five, uh, playing away, trying to earn a living, um, we put up uh, a couple from um, that we'd met on basically on Horizons Unlimited website, um, Chris and Aaron Rattay, who were travelling around the world on their motorcycle. And um, I was sitting in the backyard with Chris. We put them up here and we were having a beer. And I said, mate, I'd love to do what you're doing. And he put his beard down and he said, well, what's stopping you? You know, you could be dead tomorrow, so why don't you just do it? I went back to work about six months later and uh, said to my boss, I need a break. I haven't had a holiday for four years running this place. And I took my long service leave and we shipped our motorcycle to Europe, to England. Uh, Lived the dream of going to the Isle of Man and uh, watching the Isle of Man races and doing the, um, the track on Mad Sunday and then we trekked off across the world, um, heading towards uh, our home in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, that was a, just a wonderful, wonderful experience. By going through Europe and then uh, right down um, that Dalmatian coast into Greece, out to the Greek islands, uh, ferrying the bike out there, then back into Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, and right across through Asia and some of the places which are pretty hard to travel through now. Um, and uh, eventually making it back home in a year. Um, so that was our first journey. And we got some really good advice, I have to say, from Chris and Erin Rattay, because we'd never done a big trip like that before. Um, we were thinking of riding from Australia to the Isle of Man and then shipping our bike home. And we looked at the weather patterns and they said, A, you're going to be riding in bad weather all the time. 
but B, particularly for me, having not done um, any long, that sort of long distance on the back of a motorbike before, do the easy bit first. So go to Europe, and by the time we got to the more difficult countries, like the, um, when we got into the eastern parts of Turkey and the roads started to get bad and accommodation wasn't so easy to find and we, you know, language difficulties and very different cultures to deal with when we were in Iran and Pakistan... I was very used to travelling by then, we both were, and it made it a, um, a far more enjoyable experience rather than a stressful one. That's a very good point. Uh, you know, a, a long shakedown uh, ride before you get into the thing where you're at least socially challenged anyway. I mean, you get into some of those countries where you're, yeah. you're going to be exposed to things that you're probably not used to. Yeah, yeah. 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 It was good advice and it worked really well for us. And um, if ever anyone asks us what's the one piece of advice we give, that's one I always give them. It's it's a good way of doing it. And let me tell you, Jim, it turned my five-star girl into a million-star girl where I could get her to camp out under those bright stars. <laughs> well, I, I want to talk about beginnings too because, um, Brian, you said you've been riding since you were a kid, but surely you uh, clearly are not riding your own motorcycle. You, you've been a pillion and you're quite happy to do that. Where did all this begin? Like, let, maybe we start with Brian. Uh, you were riding on the farm, which I assume is, is not all that uncommon in Australia. You're you're chasing sheep around, which I know you guys are fond of. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's a New Zealanders. That's a New Zealanders. <laughs> yeah, look, uh, riding in the outback is very different. You know, it's, um, it's not over fields and things like that. It's around salt bushes, dodging rabbit burrows, uh, riding over sand dunes, um, it can be quite um, difficult and dangerous when you go out um, from the, the property that I was working on as a, as a kid you know, during my school holidays. We would ride out oh, 20, 30 kilometres from the station and muster sheep around um, uh, the, the bush and I can remember I was out there on a little two-stroke bike and I hold the piston and I was 20 kilometres from nowhere. Now, if you try and walk 20 kilometres in the heat of uh, the outback, you die. So I just had to sit under a tree and wait until uh, someone at the station realised I wasn't there and came out looking for me um, after dark. And that's the sort of, you know, it's, it's just the awareness of what, where you are and what you're doing. You learn it really quickly out there. Well, on a two-stroke bike, too. I mean, I mean it's uh, probably not the most reliable machine for you. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> and That's exactly right. W- so when did this change? I mean, that's something you're riding and probably not thinking much of. When did that change to a real love for motorcycles? Oh, um, I, I think it just developed from there. My, my dad came home when I was old enough to have a car license with a, a, a really uh, classic car that was really hard to get and said, son, if you give up motorbikes, this car's yours for free. And mm. I said, take it back. Oh. I love my bikes. Um, and uh, I, I always had motorbikes. Actually, when I joined the police force, I didn't own a car. I didn't own a car until I was well in my 20s. And um, uh, so I've always had at least one bike in the shed um, and um, I always rode it to work. I mean, Shirley was on uh, television. <laughs> We'd ride into the city on the bike, and she'd be in her skirt on the back of my bike in the middle of a Melbourne winter. Uh, we'd go to work that way. So, we, yeah, we, we've always got into bikes. And Shirley's got her own story about he, she, she, uh, why she loves motorcycling too. Yeah, when I was a, a teenager, Jim, all of my um, male friends had bikes. And I grew up on the beachside suburbs of Sydney, um, 
north of here and the weather was always great. And unfortunately, it was in those days, well, not unfortunately, but it was in those days when no one wore helmets. Um, in Manly, where I grew up, the shoe of choice was the rubber thong. Um, so it would be nothing to get on the back of a bike in a pair of shorts and a T-shirt and thongs and no helmet and go for a ride up the coast, which, of course, I now just shudder at the thought that we did. But we all survived, and I actually went out with a boy who used to race his bike, and we used to ride, um, you know, about 120 k's to the racetrack, take all the glass off the bike, and he'd race it, and then he'd put all the glass back on the bike, and we'd ride home. So I've always been opinion. It, it suits me fine. I actually can't even ride a push bike, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> so I'm very happy. All care, no responsibility. In, in Australia, is that not a, sort of a childhood thing that you learn how to ride a bicycle? Uh, look, it is uh, for most people, but where I grew up, it was very hilly and um, our mother didn't ride a, a, a bicycle and so it was just something that we never did. My brother can't ride a bicycle either. <laughs> Basically, she's lazy, Jim. <laughs> now, that's why I want you guys in the same room. That's exactly why. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. how long have you guys been riding like this? Oh, um, well, I had an old bike, and we had the World Superbikes down at Phillip Island, which is one of the best race tracks in the world for motorcycles. And uh, at the World Superbikes, you can ride down here, ride around the inside of the track, in circuit area, and... Uh, get around and I said to Shirley one day, it was a beautiful day, I said, let's jump on the old bike and, and go for a ride. And we went down there and had a great time and she said, you know, why don't we do a little bit more of this? So I sold the uh, the old uh, um, Yamaha I had, which really wasn't that comfortable for two up. No, if we were going to do anything more than yeah. an hour and a half, I needed a very comfortable pinion seat. So I guess what I bought had to be a BMW for comfort more than anything. But I've got to say, um, we, we travelled um, over to Adelaide and South Australia and around the winery regions, and that started our, our journeys in Australia. And then we've ridden right up from, uh, we're in, right in the south of um, mainland Australia, right up to the, the northern parts of Australia, right over to the west, the little island of Tasmania, which has got some of the best motorcycling country um, this, um, this uh, Australia has to offer anyway. Um, so we've done all that, and um, as I said, we wanted to expand our horizons, and my dream was to go to the Isle of Man TT, I've got to say, and then we thought, well, why not go further? Remember, and away we went, and it becomes addictive, absolutely addictive to travelling on the road, and you meet the best people. One thing about the bike, Jim, and I know you'd be well aware of this, is if you pull into a service station to get fuel... People want to know where you've been, where you're going. Um, we always put a sticker of the flag of the countries that we've been through on the bike, so the bike is certainly a talking point. Whereas if you pull up in a car, they don't go up and go, gee, that's a nice you know, Holden or whatever. Um, you know, where are you from? But the bike is a really good starting point, and we've made so many fabulous friends all over the world when we've been travelling on the motorcycle. It's fantastic. Yeah, like it or not, you're wide open there. When you pull up, you couldn't avoid yeah. somebody if you tried. Well, that's true, and that is a bit of a drawback when you pull up in countries like India and Pakistan where, they, where personal space is something they don't understand. And um, I've got a fabulous photograph. I went into a post office when we were in Pakistan to send some stuff home. So I'm a bit of a shopper, and I've found out how to post from every country in the world. And uh, when I came back, all I could see was Brian's head and this sea of shorter... Um, people, and in the middle of that was the bike. 
Uh, there was, he was just surrounded by about 60, 80 people. Yeah, and the same thing in Iran. I surely wanted to go and have a look at this mosque, which was all chrome. And uh, I pulled up out the front and I said, well, you go and have a look. And there was actually a funeral going on at the time and she just joined the funeral party and never a problem. And uh, next thing, I'm just surrounded by at least 200 people wanting to know where we are, why we're here, what we're doing, are we having a good time? Then, very, the, very friendly. then the police turned up wanting to know why there was such a big crowd. <laughs> <laughs> and they were very friendly. Did you ever get used to it? Yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> it really does my head in. Yeah, personal space is something that Cheryl really had trouble with. Um, I must say, um, I sort of got used to it after a while, but uh, I got to, I, I'm completely bald and uh, I stood out more as a ball band than uh, as a woman in places like Iran and Pakistan. I got sick of being stared at, I've got to say. It was like I was blonde and had long legs and big you-know-whats, Jim. It's funny, you know, because you, you even notice it. I mean, I've, um, I've grown up in uh, areas where there's very few people, and, uh, you know, at one point we had this house that was on the beach. And for us, personal space meant, you know, maybe a kilometer. <laughs> if, some, yeah, if somebody yeah, exactly. if somebody shows up on your beach, you're sort of looking at going, what are they doing? What, you know, why, why are they there? <laughs> Whereas if you're from the city and you can stand right beside somebody, you're right up close to somebody, and it doesn't feel yeah. uh, odd at all. And I, and I guess in those countries, yeah. I mean, that, that's what you're dealing yeah, multiply with. multiply that by 10, mate, don't I? Multiply yeah. Multiply that by 10 and they're right in your face. I, I had... Uh, at one point there, I had a fuel line break on the bike, you know, and I pulled up and uh, I had a, so I always carry a bit of spare fuel hose and clamps and stuff like that. So I'm fixing that and I just moved my foot back a bit and there was a yelp behind me. There was a bloke standing right behind me and I stood on his foot. <laughs> and I know, you'd have 50 people around you while you're trying to do stuff like that. Or we were stuck in a traffic jam in um, oh, yeah. in rural India, and a guy came up and started pressing the start button on the bike, and the bike was actually going. Yeah, he's walking through the traffic, you know, and I'm hooked up. Uh, I actually had my crash bar hooked into a tuk-tuk who was trying to push through the traffic, and we were having a little tape-to-tape with the tuk-tuk driver. Next thing, this guy's walked on and starts pressing the starter button. Go away! <laughs> what was he thinking he was doing? He was just playing with it, you know. They, they, they're so fascinated with the bike, you know, and... and I've got to say, when you're travelling, it's not just the two of you, it's the three of you. You've really got to look after your bike. I went to your own form of transport, it's your world. And um, uh, often our bike would be in some places under armed guard or it lived in a restaurant, it lived in hotel foyers. Uh, um, one night it lived on a street in Delhi under, under an armed guard. And uh, I have the best advice I can to give people in race to travel in those parts of the world is take a, the dirtiest, oldest bike cover you've got and as soon as you put the cover on the bike, it disappears. People aren't interested in it. But if you haven't got the cover on it, they'll be clambering it all over it. But even with that, we would go out in the morning and I'd find the bike in gear or um, switches move and obviously the security guards have it's got too much for them. They've had to have a little play, you know. Well, that's fine. That's no problem. But as long as the bike doesn't disappear, you're okay, you know. Yeah, let's talk about the bike for a minute. You mentioned that you went to a BMW and you sort of said that was the natural choice for you. Why the BMW? And, and which one for that matter? Um, well, I started off on the K-Series bikes around here, but um, and I actually sold a K-Series bike to do our first trip uh, across the world um, because um, the, the parallel twin, uh, the horizontal post, I should say, is easy to work on. You can do the valves on the side of the road, you can drop the oils, you've got separate uh, gearbox and engine oil and diff oil. 
and the 1150GS that I had in those days was a great bike for that sort of thing, really was, very easy. The only thing I had to modify really, we changed the suspension to really good suspension um, to cope with what we were going to do. Um, and then uh, I put the fuel uh, filter on the outside of the tank so that I could change it because I knew I would get bad fuel. You do your research. Um, fuel prices in those days in uh, Iran were five cents a litre, um, but uh, the fuel quality wasn't the best. So when it started to chug along a bit and it was getting um, clogged up, I just throw change the filter and then uh, change the spark plugs and you're right again. Keep the revs up to it so it's not labouring too much and the bike performed well. They are almost uh, um, a bullet, I wouldn't say bulletproof, Every, everything that's mechanical can break down, but they're a great bike for this sort of travel. You're referring to the 1150, not the K-Series, right? Yeah, I changed the 1150 yeah. GS, yeah, yeah. And we actually tried the 1150, I'm going to BMW and say, well, I'm going to buy a new bike and see what we're going to do. I tried the Adventure, but because we're travelling two up, the Adventure seat was too short. And I said, well, I need to change that seat and that arrangement in the back. Oh, we can't do that. I said, well, I'm not having that. And I actually bought the standard GS. Um, and people, some people talk about, well, you need fuel. You need to have carry a lot of fuel. You know, if the, the world runs on fuel, if you find a village, someone will have petrol. Yeah, I mean, Grant Johnson makes some, some interesting points about that, and, and others for that matter. If you're driving on a road, there's other people on the road because there's a road yeah, and there's yeah. probably fuel needed too. So you're, you're yeah. going to find it. I, I mean, I've had people say that they, they've changed their tanks, and when I'm asking, you know, what modifications would you do again, they're saying, well, I wouldn't do the tank again because there was only this one spot or two spots where I needed extra yep. fuel and I, I could have filled up yep. a, a container. Well, you know, that's right. On our last trip, you know, we're in South America going down Route of 40, and I've got the, now the 1200 GS Adventure with that big fuel tank. And even with that, you know, we pulled into a town and uh, we thought, oh, well, we'll fuel up in the morning, you know. And by the time we got up in the morning, there was no fuel in that town. And we didn't have enough fuel to get to the next town. So we're there for a day while we're waiting for the fuel tanker to come. So, you know, little tricks like that. But you know, if you see fuel, um, you fill it up, you know, if you can. Um, but uh, having said that, the, the 12, uh, 1200 Adventure out here is fantastic. You know, if you go across the Nullarbor Plain here, you can do 600 kilometres between fill-ups. It's, uh, it's a good tank to be able to do big kilometres on in a day. And what are you riding now? Uh, I'm riding an 08 uh, 1200 GS Adventure BMW, and uh, that's now just about to tick over 180,000 kilometres doesn't use a drop of oil uh, and that one I'm going to rip the island shockers out of it refurbish them and put them back in probably upgrade um, my driving lights on it not those dinky little daylight running lights proper driving lights and um, we'll be ready to go and um, if I don't get 300,000 k's out of it before any major issue I'll be disappointed because uh, it's, a, it's been a great bike I've got to say. Uh, what are you using for communication devices or are you between the two of you. Oh, yes. He yeah. has to be able to listen to me whining and carrying on about things. If I'm cold or hot or hungry, I have to be able to let him know. <laughs> Why not just With tap the... him? <laughs> oh, he yeah. ignores tapping. My, my right kidney is really bruised. <laughs> um, no, we use a, an old Autocom um, wired system, not Bluetooth, and a couple of reasons for that. I've had it on two or three different bikes. 
and it's almost bulletproof. Um, you don't have to recharge batteries in helmets. We have had heard of people, Ken Carol Javal, I think, had on this program. Um, they had problems with their Bluetooth, not being able to communicate with the GPS. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, when you're in a strange country, in a strange city, huge city, uh, you need everything around you, and your opinion is really important to be able to direct you, help you, guide you, listen to the GPS, all that sort of stuff. So we use it a lot like that. And um, it's a wide system, but I've got to say, the previous system I had, I had a switch on it where I could turn Sherl off. Uh, this system doesn't have it. It's voice activated, so <laughs> I have to, have to listen to her all the time. Sorry, darling. So, he also has to listen to me singing, so you should actually feel some pity for him. <laughs> my, well, my question is, Brian, did you actually use that switch where you can shut her off? <laughs> he uh, did. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I'd, I'd be chatting away, and I noticed his, he wasn't reacting. I thought, he has turned me off again. <laughs> so that explains <laughs> the right kidney. Exactly. Yeah, that yeah, does yeah, explain yeah. the right kidney. <laughs> well, well, that's interesting, because you also get away from the whole charging problems, don't you? I mean, there, there's... Uh, I, I know they're very good. I don't have one right now. Um, but um, there's the whole worry of charging, and then if you don't charge, then you're really stuck for that day, really. And, and with your plug-in, you're not. Yeah, that, that, that's true. And uh, we needed to get a new lead um, from Autocom, which uh, based in England. And um, uh, we called in there, and we, I had a look at some of the Bluetooth stuff, and the, the guy there said, listen, don't buy it just yet. Just wait a, a couple of years until it's really refined and improved, and um, you're, you're probably better off sticking with what, you, what you've got for what you are doing. If you're doing day rides and stuff like that, no issue. But when, you, when, when you're on the road day after day, month after month, it can become an issue. Charging's an issue when you're on the road. Um, we camped a lot in North America a couple of years ago and just trying to find somewhere to charge up the camera battery and mm. the, to the laptop and, you know, and then you add into it the Bluetooth as well. You, you're starting to use a lot of PowerPoints. And have you run an inverter on the motorcycle so you can, you can charge things no problem? I'm just uh, wiring up the bike now for a USB and I'm going to put an extra um, outlet on it and for our next journey uh, through Russia and Siberia, you know, we'll probably get the heated gear like I don't know a lot of you guys over there use, uh, which we don't have really a cause for here, but um, uh, so we can run those things and I, I will be doing that this time. It makes a huge difference, the heated gear, there's no doubt. Um, I've just sort of got yeah. into that a little bit myself, and my wife has got a, a jacket now too, Shirley. I, I think you're if, if you get cold easy, especially riding pillion, I, because I think when you're not riding, you're just not um, generating the heat that you do when you're, you're controlling the motorcycle, and yeah. it makes a big, big difference. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, I have to say, because I do get cold, and you wear too many layers, and you tend to look and feel like the Michelin man, so if you can wear something which keeps your body temperature, your core body temperature good, yeah. that's, that's important. Do you recommend anything, Jim, in, in particular? I've heard ones that, with the uh, adjustable uh, heat element in it is really, uh, really good. That's what we've heard. Uh, we're in the market for that sort of stuff now. Yeah, I, I would say definitely look at uh, adjustable heat. Uh, there's no doubt. And the nice thing about the, the heated uh, undergarments is that you can turn them off and just use them as an undergarment, which I find I do a lot. And then only when it gets very cold do I end up turning it on. But but uh, if mine wasn't adjustable, I, I think it would just be downright uncomfortable. Well, you know, a, a, a classic example, we left Cusco in uh, Peru, and we ride up through the valleys and up and up and up and up, and all of a sudden you're at 5,000 metres and there's snow and dogs walking past, you know, covered in snow. 
and then in the same right on the same day, you're down by the Pacific Ocean, and it's 30 plus degrees um, Celsius. You know, hmm. so that's where you need to be able to adjust the the variation. I think anyway. Yeah, most definitely. So you're riding the R1200GS. You've got lots of, of coverage on that for the um, rider uh, as far as wind coverage. You know, you're not, you're not yeah. exposed there. But for the pillion, now what sort of changes did you make to make sure that Shirley was comfortable on the back there? Um, we, we modified the seat a little. Um, I, I found the, the GS seat what just wasn't quite right for me. And I found a local guy that ripped it apart, put harder padding in it and reshaped it. To push it back a bit, and, and like a lot of guys, I suffer from lower back pain, so made sure that was sitting up. I was sitting up a bit straighter. But Shirley found with the 1200 GS, a lot of spray comes off the back wheel because of all the weight they've taken off it. It doesn't have the same coverage, so we've actually got you know like uh, bar bags that you can get and go across the handlebars. I put one of those either side on the subframe and uh, put a, a rear hugger, uh, one to protect the, uh, the alum shock absorber, but also to stop the spray coming off uh, with the mud and the, and the, the, the uh, water spray off the back wheel. And that sort of helps Shirley a lot um, uh, with that. Uh, she gets so comfortable she goes to sleep on the back, to be quite honest with you, Jim. Yeah, it is the, the seat is very comfortable, and, and we either have the metal top box <coughs> Or two roll bags behind me, so I don't sort of feel as though I'm about to disappear off the back of the bike. And luckily, when I nod off, I do nod off and lean forward, not to the side. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's handy. So, do you read a book as well? I can't actually because I wear glasses and I can't put my glasses on under the helmet, or I would. <laughs> <laughs> I, I asked that because someone else mentioned they, they're reading on the back of the bike and think, really? <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, Grant and Susan Johnson, I think you'll find Susan sits on the back with her own GPS and uh, reads maps on the back. So, yeah, she does that. Yeah, <laughs> not she's not my, a bad effort. <laughs> she's my hero. She can read a map. I can't read a map. And on our first trip overseas, the only time we argued was when I got us lost. And unfortunately, that was always in the most inopportune moments at the worst possible location. But um, this time, it's, uh, our last trip with the GPS saved the argument level a lot. Well, how do you handle figuring out where you're going and working with the GPS without your glasses? Uh, well, we do. We plan the day before, and we 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 always carry a paper map as well as the GPS. And um, we used to just write down, you know, in 50 kilometres, we'll need to turn left on the road to Timbuktu, whatever, um, and put that in the tank bag. So um, we always have an idea of where we're going and then just mainly the GPS is to get us through cities. Yeah. That's, that's where it really comes it, into its own. I, I, I would say you can't just rely on a GPS. I mean, they, um, you've heard of people disappearing into lakes and all sorts of things blindly following a GPS. You need maps as well. And I'm old-fashioned, probably from my outback days, I still carry a compass. Um, so just in case everything breaks down... I can uh, find my way through, and I believe in certain parts of Mongolia where we're going next, um, there's tracks that disappear into the desert everywhere. So you've really got to know where you're going um, to find the next village and stuff like that. So I'll have to hone up my skills, I think, a little. Yeah, in my mind, the biggest problem with the GPS is it's much like seeing the world through a straw. You, you have such a limited yeah. screen there, and you just can't get the lay of the land. And no matter, at least for me anyway, and other people I spoke with, but no matter how much you scroll back and forth, it's very difficult to get the, the lay of the land and understand where you're, yep. where you're going. Yeah, so that, that, 
that that's exactly right, Jim, and and uh, I agree with that. And I, I find them very very handy. Say you're coming into New York or somewhere like that, um, they'll get you to where you want to go eventually. And cities don't change that much, so really you can get through them pretty quick. But when you're in the the country and, and up in the beautiful mountains and things like that that you want to see, I reckon you're a lot better off with a paper map and you can plot your own course and, and work out what you want to see and what you want to do. Yeah, I'm the same way. I, I use both. And of course, everything can fail. I mean, paper maps, I've had them disintegrate on me and, and uh, I've had my GPS <laughs> fail. I mean, one time, one time I'm here in British Columbia and it's showing me that I'm off the coast of Africa. Now, I was pretty sure I was oh. just definitely not off the coast of Africa. Well, you know, well, you are. You're a long way off the coast of Africa. <laughs> you know, I never thought of that. Maybe it was right. <laughs> oh, fantastic. We, um, we always carry a, a roll of um, sellotape to stick the maps back together, yeah. and our, uh, we keep them all, post them home when we leave the country, and when we right. get home and you look at them, and they were very um, torn apart, but all stuck together with sticky tape, and we mark on them where we went, so they're, they're good well, memories. Just, just a quick story about Iran. We, we were travelling through there, and we're thinking, how the hell are we going to get through Iran? Because you, you could not, I don't know whether you can nowadays, buy a map of Iran. And through Horizons Unlimited, we worked out there was a Turkish guy on the coast who had a map of Iran. And so we made our way down there and saw him, had a cup of coffee, he gave us the map, and it was in German. Now, this map had been across with travellers, across and backwards and forth over Iran about five or six times, and it was layered together with sticky tape uh, to hold it together. Uh, but uh, we were able to decipher it and get us through because it was in the day before GPS. So, you know, um, we were able to use that, and the stipulation was that when you got to the other side, if you found a traveller going the other way, you give them the map. Oh, wow. So this map could be in circulation now. Probably yeah. So there you go. If you're listening to the show and you have that map or have been in possession of it, drop us a line. I want to hear about this. Yeah. <laughs> so you're um you're navigating with your GPS and and your your map. You're figuring out what you're covering in a day, and then you're. Do you always reach your destination, or are you sort of winging it? Um, sometimes we wing it. Sometimes we just go to as far as we feel is is you know we might come across a town that we really like or a beachside location. When we were in Turkey, along the Mediterranean coast of Turkey, we'd get up and say, okay, today we are going to do 300 k's, and we'd get 120 k's and find a really nice beach. We'd stop to have something to eat and a cool drink, so oh, this is really too good, so we'd find a hotel and stay a day, and we'd say, look, we definitely will leave tomorrow, and then we'd stay another day because it was too nice. <laughs> so we, we, when we've got the flexibility, we do that. Um, but sometimes we want to get to a place for a certain event, and then we set ourselves a a schedule and probably the worst day we had on our last trip was um, we left southern Patagonia on the 2nd of January and it was like you know obviously it's Christmas holidays and there were so many people on the road and it was summertime and we were traveling up the coast and we had to do 900 kilometers until we found a town with a hotel that had a vacant room because everything was full of, of holiday travelers so that was a very unpleasant day because it was incredibly hot and a really long day. Well, that's, of course, where the R1200 comes in. You know, you're, you're so comfortable yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's right. And, you, and it just plugs along and away you go. One of my stipulations was that I, want, I wanted a bike that would at least sit near the speed limit and keep up with the traffic. I, I think one of the most dangerous things is having traffic, traffic come up behind you and pass you. And I think on the long way around... Um, Ewan got uh, tail-ended somewhere in, in, the, in northern America there 
uh, on a freeway. You know, people trying to get too close to you. You've got to be able to sit on the speed limit and keep going like that. And I think that's really, really important. Uh, and the GS is just a great bike for that sort of thing. It really is. Just goes and goes and goes all day. And two up on one of those smaller bikes would also be a problem. Yeah. Hey, but, you know, it's horses for courses. For us, the big bike suits us. We're carrying everything um, with us. And it's got to be big and comfortable for both of us. So you just handle, when you get into that tight stuff, you just got to handle it. And um, they, they carry their weight uh, pretty low, actually. So they're not too bad. Well, my opinion for it is that um, you really should not just have one bike. I don't think any house should be stuck with just one bike. You should have multiple bikes. Everyone should have multiple bikes. Thank That's, you, Jim. Yeah. Thank you for that advice. <laughs> my my yeah. advice is um, how many bikes does a man need? One more. We have, um, we have multiple bikes. My car now lives in the driveway because there is no room for it in the garage because there are three bikes in the garage and our mechanic has another two of our bikes which are being restored at the moment. So we've got plenty. And there's one more I've got to tell her about that oh. uh, <laughs> her friend's looking after. Yeah, let's do that right now, Brian, while we're, while no, we're no, in the no, show I here. Don't, I don't think so. So surely Brian has something to tell you. <laughs> uh, he's very brave in company, even if the company is at the other end of the phone line on the other side of the world. <laughs> you guys have done a lot of traveling here on, on your bikes. And it's great that you have, you have such a, a well-oiled team, so to speak. You know, the two of you both have your positions that you like on the bike and, um, and are very comfortable with them, surely probably more so because she's sleeping most of the time. But... <laughs> <laughs> Give us some stories of two or three of the most spectacular things that your motorcycle is taking you to. Wow. Um, I guess the mountain passes in the Andes, the first, the first Andes crossing we did when we left Santiago and we headed over to Mendoza and we went over San Cristobal, I think is the name of the pass, through this amazing tunnel. And they count the switchbacks as you go up the... the um, Chilean side of the road and I think it goes up to 50 something and that was incredible and we'd only picked up the bike from the shipping yard the day before so that was our first ride in in South America and that just that took both of our breaths away it was just the most beautiful scenery and the road was in such good condition and the weather was perfect it was just one of those days where you were really delighted to be on a motorbike absolutely out of this world. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say um, um, the Carrera Austral, which was a bit rugged in places, going down through Chile. Uh, the, the southern part of Chile is just magnificent. Think of those picture-perfect shots you see of Switzerland, and that's what that's like. Big lakes, uh, big green fields, smoking volcanoes, uh, snow-capped mountains, the whole bit. You, you get all that in probably two or three days, heading down towards the national parks in the south. Uh, and also, Turkey is a country that uh, fascinates me. It's uh, the perfect example of a secular country. The people are so friendly. But that coastline down around the Mediterranean is uh, spectacular, absolutely spectacular. So to me, they're the two favourites. Um, and I guess, I mean, we one thing we do when we travel, Jim, is while we're on a bike, and it's in, in some respects it's an adventure trip, we do do all the touristy things. So seeing Machu Picchu, seeing the Taj Mahal, um, we've been to Antarctica, we left the bike in Ushuaia and went to Antarctica, we left the bike in Quito and went to Galapagos. 
those things are the experiences that the that travelling the way we do it just it's a bonus. You get all those great roads, you meet brilliant people, and then you get to do the the fabulous tourist sites of the world as well. Guadalupe Falls, Victoria yeah, Falls, it makes Niagara Falls look uh, like a, a little dribble going coming out of a bucket, really. And we went through British Columbia and we spent 10 glorious days in Smithers waiting for a shock absorber <laughs> to arrive from the US. And, um, you know, Smithers is a really nice town, but 10 days was <laughs> sufficient, <laughs> I think. But I've got to say, uh, the Canadian people that we met were just fantastic. The, the lady that stopped uh, from the Department of Motor Transport, I yep. think it is you have over there, she... Uh, you're in a bit of trouble here in the middle of bear country, 250 kilometres from anywhere. If you can get the bike into the back of my uh, utility, I'll take you back to Smithers. Nice. Uh, so we, we took the back of her her um, tray of her ute off. and uh, She big... called up a road gang to come yeah. and help, and they lifted the bike onto well, the back there's of one the guy who should have been on World Championship Wrestling who picked up the back of the 1200 GS while I just steered the front and <laughs> put it up into the back of her... And then we get back to Smithers and we go to the local Harley dealer and drop the bike there and organise to get a new shocker. And he gets sick and tired of seeing me mope around the town, so threw me the keys to a Harley and I rode that for three days, did about a thousand kilometres on it, you know, just to get out of town. And, and Sherry, the lady from the Ministry mm-hmm. of Transport, came to our hotel the next day and said, look, I've got the day off and there's nothing you can do. Why don't you come for a drive with me? And she took us to all these First Nation communities and... We found someone making totem poles and she introduced us to the totem pole maker. And it was just such wonderful sign of friendship. And um, she sent us a, a lovely gift recently, yeah. you know, and that was uh, 18 months ago and we still and keep in touch with her. It's just fabulous. And, and uh, there's a guy um, who lives near um, Vancouver Island, isn't he? Um, Greg Newfield, who um, we met through Horizons. He contacted us and said, I'll get a shocker for you and ride up to Smithers with it if you like, you know. They're the sort of people you meet in, in this community, which is uh, just all-encompassing. And it just, just makes the heart feel good, to be quite honest with you, Jim. It's fantastic. Well, in spite of everything you read in the, in the news and that you hear, um, you know, in social media, as far as the state of the world goes, it sort of um, rekindles that, that feeling, that, that kinship for, you know, people in general, doesn't it? It does. And you know what? People need to um, separate regimes from the community, from the population. We found that everywhere in the world, what people want to do is educate, clothe and feed their children. They want to live in peace and um, they just want a good life for themselves. It's the government. You know, people said to us, oh, Iran's going to be terrible. But the Iranian people are some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. It's just their regime is really secondhand. I mean, you don't want to deal with them, but the people are fabulous and we found that everywhere. If you're in trouble, people will always look out for you. Mm. You'll, you'll meet bad, bad eggs everywhere, I guess, but we've never had really any unfortunate experiences with people. We've just, everyone's been very friendly, very helpful. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, we, we, we don't go out nightclubbing at 3 o'clock in the morning into bad areas where you're going to get mugged. Uh, that can happen in any city. So, you know... You've just got to be a little bit careful, but um, we've never had a bad experience, Jim. Yeah, I think that's very well said, uh, especially what Shirley just said there about separating the um, the regimes or the, the governments from the, yeah. the actual individual people who have probably have very little to do with it at all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you looked at some of the politics in our country, you wouldn't like Australia very much. <laughs> but we're actually really good people. <laughs>
So all of these travels you've done have produced, I understand, two books. You've got um, you've got Circle to Circle and uh, Two for the Road. I believe Two for the Road was the first one. Am I correct? That's right. It, it covers our trip from London back home to Australia, which we did in 2003, 2004. Um, and that's where we went through Iran and Pakistan and Asia, India, Nepal. Um, and Circle to Circle is from our latest trip where we went from the bottom of South America to Alaska and then a lap of Western Europe and a lap of Southern Africa. I mean, the plan was to actually ride all the way home from Europe, but the Arab Spring caused difficulties getting a ferry into Egypt and Libya was a problem and Algeria was still closed and the Taliban were in Timbuktu. And we, it kind of got to the point where we thought, look, we're adventurous, but we're not foolhardy. So we uh, flew the bike to South Africa and just rode around Africa for a while and then came home. So yeah. that's circle to circle. Yeah, and those books now, I think uh, e-books are available. Um, yeah, e-books and paperbacks through Amazon and um, those online booksellers, you can get them. So when, you, um, when you're doing these trips, was a, a book in mind? Well, a lot of people shoot video, but I'm a journalist and my trade is, is words, the written word, and um, we did a diary. And um, through that, I was working, actually doing publicity for a writer's festival in Melbourne and I took the year off um, to do our first trip and just sent an email out to all of my clients saying I won't be here for a year and this is who's going to be looking after my work and a radio station contacted me and said oh can we talk to you while you're traveling and through that a publisher heard and said well we'd be interested in having a look at a manuscript if you write one so what we did is we just sort of cobbled together our diary that we were writing every day and uh, that's how the first book was born and it just seemed to make sense to do a second one um, when we did our, our next trip because the books, you don't need to be um, a huge motorcycle fan. You don't need to be um, a big travel person. I mean, they're, they're, they're a travel narrative. They talk about our relationship. They talk about the people we meet on the road, the places we go. Obviously, the bike is the third character in the book. Um, and a friend of ours who's a, a crime writer described our second book as a love letter to our bike, which I thought was a really nice way of putting it. But um, you don't have to have a great passion for motorcycles. There's not a lot of technical stuff about the bike other than us bleating when things go wrong. And it's, and, and it's about a relationship. It's what happens when two people sit back to, back to front for um, eight, uh, 16 months on a bike. I mean, we have our moments like everyone and... Um, we write about that up to a point. What sort yeah, of things happen? <laughs> well, he um, actually made me cry on our first trip because he yelled at me so often because I got us lost. <laughs> and I put that in the book and he feels that I, I treated him harshly by putting that in the book. <laughs> but I have to tell you, Jim, on this second trip, um, we wanted to. he wanted to swim in the Caribbean, but we couldn't get across to that part of the um, Yucatan Peninsula because we were running late for an appointment to meet friends in, in Texas. And I said to him, no, you've got it all wrong, Brian. I've booked the hotel of where we can stay for three days and it's walking distance to the beach. And it was, and it was a lovely hotel. It was 750 kilometres from where we were meant to be, that's all. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a big ride the next day, Jim. <laughs> but I did get to swim in the caravan, so that's okay. So you rode so to the I hotel? Could... Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he did it. He was yeah. really good. Thought, he, yeah. Well, damn it, let's go and do it. 
so we just did it, and then uh, we we made up time uh, catching up with our friends in Mexico, so uh, in Texas, I should say. So um, yeah, yeah, but um, that's what he has to put up with being married to me. Um, <laughs> yeah, and and Shirley likes um, to really get into the history of the the places that we're going to, and uh, so you know it's a compromise between what we do, and uh, I love scratching hard on the bike, and uh, sometimes. Um, I scared the hell out of this uh, guy on a sports bike going through the Needles Highway there with uh, Sherl on the back and knobby tyres and fully loaded. And he couldn't believe that uh, we could uh, ride um, that well. And uh, at the end of that, Sherl sort of said, uh, don't do that again. <laughs> it's too much. Yeah. So as, as I'm getting older, Jim, I'm slowing down. And don't you find because of that, because you're traveling with two different sets of interests, that each of you show the other something that you would have otherwise missed but value afterwards? Absolutely, yeah. yep. Um, I actually enjoyed the Harley-Davidson Museum, and I never thought those words had tumbled out of my mouth. Um, and um, Brian's done a lot of um, history museums, the Gold Museum in... Um, in Bogota, in Colombia, he was dragged, kicking and screaming into it and just absolutely adored it. So, yeah, you do get to see other things and it's, it's nice having the shared interests. And when we travel, occasionally we'll meet up with other people and travel with them for a couple of weeks and that expands your horizons uh, a little bit further too because they might suggest places that we hadn't thought of visiting and we'll go there and it's, it's a great way to travel. Have you found that your your outlook or your approach to traveling has changed since the beginning? Oh, most definitely. Definitely for me, um, I was very conservative when we first went away and um, I wanted to have a hotel booked every night and I wanted a certain level of hotel. I wasn't quite five-star. I think Brian exaggerates on that. But, you know, I wasn't... Rustic wasn't exactly my idea of, of comfort. Well, well, hang on a minute. I... I, I... I got sacked from choosing the hotel. Let me tell you, <laughs> I got the sack. Because <laughs> his idea of adequate and my idea of adequate were very different. <laughs> so I stopped letting him go in and look at the rooms. <laughs> so, so his was uh, adequate was more like, yes, it has a bed, and yours was looking for a little more. <laughs> that's yeah, right. yeah, that's I was it. looking for you know luxury like clean sheets and things like that. So how has that changed? Where are you staying now? You're camping too, well, right? Well, now we camp, yeah. yeah. Now we camp. Not all the time, but we do camp. And um, we've got really good camping gear that we um, we got when we got to the US. And um, I, I'm less desirous of having a hotel booked for the next night unless there's something particular we want to get to. We're much happier to, to wing it. And uh, so that has changed my attitude. And... I've got to say, when you get home back to Australia, you think, gosh, people are so stitched up about so many things that to us don't seem important. I mean, we love, we've, we've got a wonderful home and, and we love being home, but um, being on the road, you see, see life differently. You, you, you see people who have nothing, but they're the ones that want to give you the most. Oh, yeah. And then you, you come back to Western society where... It, a lot of it's all about money and how much you earn and how big your house is and how many cars you've got. And you think, oh, you know, maybe you people need to get out a bit more and, and reevaluate what's important in life. Do you find yourself heading back to the road sort of to get away from that? Yeah, I do. I do, Jim. I, I, you know, I get home and, uh, yeah, I enjoy um, our city and our home and all the rest of it. But, boy, I yearn for the road sometimes and just to be able to escape. And you bring your life down to what's 
the bike and what's on the bike is your life. And to me, it's simplifying your life and all of a sudden you're seeing things differently. You're seeing a big blue sky. Uh, you're seeing those clouds scudding across there and think, well, it's going to rain. Well, yeah, we might get wet, but hey, that's nature. You know? And you, you live life at that level on the road. And that, to me, that's, that's the basis of life. It's reducing things to those basic needs, isn't it, that allows you to sort of look up. I mean, you're, you're no longer hemmed in by all the fixings of your home and your phone and everything else that goes on in our lives. You're, you're living on the road, you're camping um, or traveling from place to place. It gives you that time to just look outward. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And, you, and then you go in and you see uh, the old Inca or Aztec cultures and you see how they lived life and... Um, you know, you get to experience that. And uh, to me, off the back of a motorbike, um, you can you, you actually get a feel for the country, you get a feel for the climate, you know, how difficult it was them to build Machu Picchu in that environment, you know. Um, with that thin air, that, yeah. carrying all those rocks with that thin air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you live in it day to day, you know, rather than just fly in and see it over a couple of days, you're there for weeks and weeks and weeks, and you really get to appreciate it. You guys have got, um, uh, I guess, uh, oh, I don't know, would it be hundreds of thousands of kilometres now? Oh, yeah. We've yeah. done 100 and, we worked it out a few days ago, 146,000 overseas, overseas, outside of Australia. And then I'd hate to think how many Ks we've done together around Australia. Well, on the Beamer bikes, I've done nearly, nearly half a million kilometres on Beamers, and uh, God knows how many on other bikes. So, yeah, yeah, we've done a bit on bikes. But we do also have a four-wheel drive. So we do go, um, quite often when we go um, into the real outback, into the centre of Australia, we take the four-wheel drive. Then you've got the fridge, so you've got cold food, cold drinks and a big tent. And, yeah, so we we have both both ends of the spectrum. And some more security there, I guess, with your, since you're such a, an extreme environment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, there's places in Australia that won't let you travel just one up anyway. You have to travel with two cars just for safety across some of the deserts and uh yeah you need that and and while um riding in winter is a piece of cake here sometimes in summer particularly in the center it gets so hot it's just debilitating on a motorcycle it's just too hot um and you know you're doing big fast days where there's absolutely nothing in the center of australia and it's 45 degrees it's um most unpleasant and and risky just on the outskirts of sydney yesterday it was 47 degrees yeah and that's celsius you're saying Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, what I wanted to ask you about, you know, having all these miles covered on the bike is what's the advantages and disadvantages that you guys see with riding two up? Uh, the, dis- the big disadvantage is not being able to carry um, as much food and water um, if, we're, if we want to go and um, camp, wild camp for a few days. That is a, that is a huge disadvantage, just the, the lack of carrying capacity of, of two up. That's the main one. Uh, I think bike uh, design now is so good that two-up travel is a lot easier. In the old days, tyres wear out very quickly, um, uh, things like that. And the handling of the bikes now are pretty good. Good suspension and things like that allows them to be quite capable of of carrying people two-up. But of course, when you're getting the tight stuff, it's a little bit harder because of the extra weight you're throwing around. But um, um, having said that, Jim, I'm quite happy... um, doing our two-up touring, no worries. And, and, and there is an advantage when we go from continent to continent, um, other than when the bike leaves Australia, it always goes by sea, 
But when we, you know, from South America to North America, North America to England, we fly it. And uh, you start flying two bikes, and that adds an enormous Cost. expense mm. onto it. And your fuel costs go up, your carne costs go up. So, the, you know, it's, it's cost-effective to ride two up. And when your wife doesn't ride, you don't really get much choice. That's true. That's definitely a, a dictator for it, isn't it? You're flying your, your bike around from place to place. Now, why do you choose to fly it as opposed to ship it? Um, well, when, um, when you look at it, uh, if you ship, say you're, you're traveling and you're shipping from, say, Canada to the UK, um, you then have to put yourself up uh, and wait the extra time, clearing customs and quarantine and all those issues when you land a bike at a seaport takes a hell of a long time. I'll give you a classic example. We flew our bike um, from Toronto and it was roll on roll off freight. Um, uh, so take it to the, the freight terminal, do the paperwork, hand them over the bike. Um, it goes into one of those aluminium containers and away it went. Uh, and I thought, well, okay, we'll allow a day or two. So we booked a hotel near the airport at Manchester in the UK and we were there, and two hours later we get a phone call, well, the bike's cleared customs, we're ready to come pick it up, come around and pick it up. So the time frame is a lot quicker uh, when you fly the bike. Um, and it, look at it, think of it like this, it's an extra airfare, basically. So rather than pay two, you pay three airfares. Why is that a faster turnaround time? Do you have any idea what, what makes it quicker by air? Uh, I, well, a couple of things. Uh, the space is a lot more limited at airports. Uh, and they process them a lot quicker. And when you go into a seaport, you've got hundreds of containers, if not thousands of containers coming in, and they've got to be cleared and uh, checked off by customs. And if you go in a container, it's uh, usually uh, one bike. Um, you're in a part-filled container, so that container's got to be emptied um, by the freight agent, and it might take some time for them to do that. Um, unless um, on our, our next um, adventure, we're going with a, a company that's actually shipping motorcycles to Greece. So the whole container goes. So we know what day it's going to arrive. Sometimes if the containers get offloaded, like from Australia here, all containers go via Singapore or Hong Kong, depending on which way they're going. So they'll get offloaded off ships and put onto other ships. For example, we were told it would take 63 days for our motorcycle from Melbourne to Chile. It took 83 days by the time it went up to Hong Kong, Japan, Korea. Then it went across to Canada and, and hopped down the coast before it got to Chile. So, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, it's cost-effective um, financially and time-wise to fly. Sure, you could be paying for accommodations for all the, the time. That's yeah. a big difference, too. Wow, that's yeah. a long time to yeah. end in time for your adventure. It, yeah, and you're stuck in one place for two, three, four weeks waiting for the bike to arrive, <clears throat> yeah. whereas you could be two or three weeks on the road. Yeah. What did you do when you were waiting for your bike? Uh, we we had a we knew it was it wasn't going to arrive on time. We just had that feeling, so we'd booked a week's accommodation on the coast, um, uh, on the coast from Chile uh, from Santiago, which was lovely. And then the bike still wasn't there, so we had to move into another hotel and. We kind of cooled our heels a bit. We did day tours and hired a car at one stage and you're just filling your time and, and it gets to the point where I have to be the one talking to the freight agents because Brian just gets too grumpy. <laughs> Good point, Julie. <laughs> Good point. Glad you brought that one up, I'm sure. <laughs> so you're headed off to Vietnam next, I understand? 
<clears throat> yeah, yeah, we're off to Vietnam next week uh, with uh, a few motorcycle journeys from here in Melbourne, and uh, we're going to pick up uh, hire bikes because it's, it's impossible to bring my big motorcycles into Vietnam. And we're hiring little XR250 Hondas. So I think that's the biggest bike they have over there. That'll be fun after a 1200 for the yeah. pinion. <laughs> and two I have up, a yeah. sure this, but uh, the XR seat is not the best. And the, the first port of call, discussing it with my mates who are going, is to the local market. And at the local market, you buy a cushion for a billion passenger. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I can't wait. <laughs> I bet. How far are you riding? On... Uh, we got an eight-day eight tour going right up to the Chinese border and then uh, through the mountains and then back to Hanoi. So just a little tour, this one, and just to suck it and see. This will be our first organised tour. Normally we do it just ourselves, but um, we thought that this is probably the only way we can do Vietnam at the moment. Um, and then in, uh, what day is it, Shirley? February the 6th, the bike, uh, the B&W gets packed up and uh, arrives in um, Greece in um, early April, and uh, off we go again. And then where? Um, we'll go up around the Black Sea. Uh, um, Basically up to Scandinavia yeah, and then well, yeah, down into Russia. Yeah, we want to go. Uh, we've got a mate who's racing at the Isle of Man uh, this year again on um, a Norton-powered um, bike, um, Cam Donald, who's won everything except the open class at the Isle of Man. So I want to see Cam race. He doesn't live far from us here. And then uh, we'll head up into Scandinavia, go up that beautiful coast of Norway up to Nordcap and then um, make our way into Russia and we'll go down through St. Petersburg, Moscow, down to the stands. Uh, Mongolia. Mongolia. Siberia. I want to swim in Lake Baikal. So, uh, we're going to... The water's really cold there, but he did swim in the Antarctic Ocean, so I guess anything's possible. A notch on the yeah. belt sort of thing, just to say I've been there and I've been yeah, in that lake. exactly right. And, uh, look, we've heard you can get up to the road of bones. We might try and do that, um, but uh, we'll come back to Ulaanbaatar. I believe uh, Ken and Carol Javali, our great mates from Brisbane, are going to be travelling the other way, so we'll try and catch up in Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia and spend a couple of big nights and have a couple of sore heads there, I think, before we depart and go our separate <laughs> ways. And then uh, we'll probably head across towards uh, Vladivostok, Japan, maybe Korea, and then home from there. And how, is there a time limit there, or do you just go and...? Um, well, again, we'll be guided by your northern winter. I think um, we've got to be out of Siberia before um, we get snowed in and it gets too cold. So I'm, I'm thinking um, September is the latest. We'd have to be out of there by September. Mm-hmm. So probably only six months this trip. The other thing is Nordcap. We were reading someone was up there in um, June and they said it was really, really difficult because it was so cold and so much snow. So we're just not sure how we're going to how we're going to fit it all in and, and make sure we get the, that window of opportunity to get through Mongolia and the stands and Siberia in good weather. Wow, that sounds like an incredible trip you've got planned. Well, Jim, you only live once. You've got to do what you can while you can. Oh, that's for sure. And uh, definitely you want to get the most out of it you can because it's only uh, one shot, one kick at the can. So where does a listener go to find out more about what you guys are doing and, you know, follow your adventures? Uh, I guess, I mean, our web address is aussiesoverland.com.au and that will soon start to have the planning and preparation for the next trip going up. At the moment, it's got all of our last trip, our South America, North America trip. Any uh, advice for those who are starting out doing something like this? Look, I, I would say to anyone, you know, when we started, we used Horizons Unlimited, and I know there's ADV Rider and all that sort of stuff. We've become 
very good friends with uh, Grant and Susan Johnson. They've done a great job getting that website up and running, and it is a great resource for people planning a trip or actually on a trip because it tells you about border crossings and where you're heading and people that might be able to help you out if you find trouble and stuff like that. Great resource. So um, uh, for us, yeah, we've got our own little website and we sell our books and I hope people get a, a lot of enjoyment out of reading about our travels. But uh, also don't forget to rise as unlimited. That's great. And so- your website, of course. nice one Shirley good well Brian and Shirley thank you very much for coming on to Adventure Rider Radio and sharing your adventures with us it's been a pleasure been great thanks Jim We've been speaking with Brian Ricks and Shirley Hardy Ricks, both of them Aussies, and they've got a website called Aussies Overland, and the web address is www.aussiesoverland.com.au. you got to go check it out because they've got uh, the books available that we talked about, Two for the Road and Circle to Circle, both of them available on their website. Of course, they said, uh, I believe the one for sure is available through ebook. Check that out as well. They've got their blog on here, and as Shirley said, their preparations for their next adventure, and it's quite interesting. If, you know, having said that, you should really check out all the blogs of uh, the people that we cover. I think we always say it on the shows, but it's interesting to go and see. Each one has a flavor of its own, you know, and there's loads of information there about what they're doing. So it's quite interesting to go to visit these blogs and, uh, and just get an idea of what's available and what's possible, really. Well, that wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Now, don't forget to head on over to iTunes if you haven't already. Give us a rating, drop by our Facebook, like our page, drop us a note, drop by our website, and send us an email or fill out the contact information there. Any feedback is great. We certainly want to hear from you. And that goes for if you have a suggestion for somebody you'd like to hear interviewed or you think they would make a good interview, whether you know them or not, send us a note. Let us know what you think. I'm Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Hi, this is Grant Johnson from HorizonsUnlimited.com, and you're on Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 